reading from the book of Matthew, verses, uh, chapter 15, verses 21 through 31. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, she's crying out after us. He answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Then Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went upon the mountain and he sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And he put them at his feet and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. May you've been blessed by hearing of the word. Amen. Well, good morning. Last week we um, were in the first part of Matthew, and it was titled, really, When Purity Makes Dirty. And I wanted to title this sermon, um, When Dirty Makes Purdy, but I thought that sounded way too Snohomish County and freaky, so I didn't title it that. Instead, uh, talked about faith that saves. I'll just begin by saying this. Any faith that's dependent upon the earthly work of men is an eternal death sentence. Any faith that is dependent upon the earthly work of men is an eternal death sentence. Religion and irreligion are two sides of the same coin. The same sinful coin. There are two different ways to deny the one true Savior. The irreligious deny Jesus through sinful living. They make saviors out of creation. People, substances, things, position, power. The religious typically deny Jesus through moral living by making saviors out of themselves. They're both ways to avoid the one true Savior. Both are equally destructive, but the faith of religion we'll call it. And I'm using religion in a negative sense. It's not always used in a negative sense in the Bible, but most often in the New Testament it is. The faith of of religion, I think, is more dangerous. And that's because it's a faith that looks clean on the outside, and yet it's really dirty on the inside. It's a faith that, that sounds obedient on the outside, but it is deeply rebellious on the inside. It's a faith that smells alive on the outside, but Jesus even said it's dead on the inside. It's a faith that can often feel like worship. Even look like worship on the outside, but it's actually idolatry 
on the inside. It's a faith that, that tastes good, doing good things, but any form of repentance is truly bitter and unsatisfying on the inside because you're doing it out of fear, out of duty, not out of love. That's the faith of the Pharisees. That's the faith that we saw described last week. And during his sermon, that being Matthew chapter 5 to 7, is one big sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And, and in that sermon, Jesus said this. He said, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, speaking about the law, and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So it's this pursuit of being great in this way is what made the Pharisees become very devoted to the law. What maybe started as a pure intent became very, very dirty. They devoted themselves to being cleaner than everyone. And they succeeded on the outside. On the outside, they sounded more clean, looked more clean, smelled more clean than anybody else. And that's why when Jesus says, your righteousness, your cleanliness, your purity has got to be greater than the Pharisees, they went, who's going to get in? That's impossible. Those guys are like, pristine, Mr. Clean. These guys, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders had the right lineage, they had the right knowledge, they had the right morality. I mean, if anyone had it right from what we could see on the outside, it must be this law-loving group of guys. Particularly, as we saw last week, this kind of envoy of guys that came from Jerusalem to speak with Jesus. And Jesus in the exchange reveals that their pursuit of purity was actually making them dirtier. These guys didn't have a, a sense, they didn't have an awareness of their own brokenness, only other people's. They didn't have any sense of their true dirtiness, but they could see everybody else's. They had no sense that they were being rebellious. In fact, they thought they were being quite obedient. Totally unaware of themselves, but aware of everyone else. And how dirty, broken, sinful, rebellious everyone else was. But praise God, I'm not like those sinners over there. That's what they thought. They had no sense of their need for salvation. And therefore, they had no sense of the way of salvation. So Matthew starts another narrative. So chapter 15, these kind of narratives all work together. You can't just take one without the other. They tell one larger story. As you see them kind of set together, you see particularly the two narratives we're talking about today. One with these Pharisees we saw last week and one with this Canaanite woman. If you put them next to each other, you see some really big contrasts between what is Israel and what became the church between what was law and what is gospel. 
between what is the faith of a Pharisee and what I'm going to call the faith of a pagan. They put them right next to each other. Matthew's doing this intentionally. So let's take a look at it. Verse 21, it says, Jesus went away from there. So away from there is the place where He encountered these Jews, scribe who was like a lawyer and the Pharisee being challenged about the purity laws, withdrew away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, it says, a Canaanite woman from that region came out. So after dealing with the Pharisees, what does Jesus do? He makes a point to head north. Now, I wish I would have put a map up. To see the Sea of Galilee, if you travel north along the coast like this, on the coast of the Mediterranean, there's two cities, Tyre and Sidon, and you go through what is Phoenicia on the coast of the Mediterranean. And this is um, best described as pagan land. Okay, This is complete pagan land. You're going the furthest northmost part of what was to be the promised land. It right now is governed obviously by Rome. It is deep Gentile territory. And in Matthew 11, which I'm sure you remember back when we were there last year, or whenever it was, I've been in Matthew a long time, Jesus used Tyre and Sidon as cities, as examples of historically evil and unrepentant places. In fact, he says, if you guys, if the, if the works that were done in these cities were done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented a long time ago. So like they were characteristically evil, stereotypical, pagan places that Jesus uses as standards of badness. And upon his arrival in these two places, he is confronted by a Canaanite woman. Now, you may be familiar with Canaanites, you may not be. I'll just briefly inform you about them. They were the people that in, inhabited the Promised Land before Israel did, or the nation of Israel came through. The Canaanites were the ones that Joshua encountered as he led Israel into what became a huge war to inhabit and to take hold of the promised land. Now, Canaanites were derived, if you go way back when, they came from the son of Noah. Noah had three sons. One of the sons was named Ham. Shem, Jepheth, and Ham. Ham was the cursed son. We won't go into exactly why he was cursed. It's a crazy story. You should read it. But he was the youngest son of Noah, Ham. And Ham sinned against his father in a strange episode after the flood. It's in Genesis 9. You can read it. And Ham eventually had four sons. He was cursed by Noah. And cursed son Ham had four sons, two of which were named Canaan and Egypt. Those two sons became the primary enemies of Israel. Descendants from Noah's other son. Now, when the Israelites entered into the Promised Land, they were commanded to utterly wipe out the descendants of the Canaanites and possess it. That was everybody. 
kill everyone. Men, women, children, everybody. Many of the survivors of that war actually were driven north, the Canaanites, into the place where Jesus is now going. And they actually were no, uh, they weren't conquered completely as they were supposed to be. The place where they now exist, where Jesus is going to, is actually still part of the promised land, and it's part of the promised land that was not fully conquered. And the Canaanite culture was a deeply contaminated, ugly, dirty culture. They were despised as Israel's enemies, but they became a real thorn in the side of Israel because they were so uh, tempted by their civilization. They weren't like some kind of nomadic tribe that didn't have much. They were a civilization that was very advanced and it flourished. The book of Judges kind of records the story of this. But the people of Israel, um, because they didn't expunge them completely from the land, they they struggled with the Canaanites for years. And they basically were attracted by two things, money and sex. The Canaanite culture was devoted to both. Their uh, crops and their agriculture was actually uh, connected with fertility, which was connected with sexuality. And so they had sacred prostitution and, and human sacrifice and all kinds of things that's recorded in the Bible to make them a very dirty and immoral culture. The Canaanites. Now in Mark's recording of this story, the woman that approaches Jesus is not described as a Canaanite. She's described as a Syrophoenician woman. But Matthew says, it makes a point to say, this is a Canaanite. And any Jew that heard the word Canaanite would be like, ooh. Not only is this a woman who should not be approaching the teacher, this is a Canaanite woman. Like the worst of the worst, the dirtiest of the dirty. And so you have this stark contrast, right? If, if salvation comes from doing what is right, according to the Pharisees, then this place that Jesus is going into is where everyone is doing everything wrong. There's no way from the outside we're going to see salvation in this dirty, dark place with these dirty, dark people. So Jesus, in this story, as you put them next to each other, He withdraws, he withdraws from the Jewish world. Right? He's just talked to Jews from Jerusalem about the law, he withdraws from the Jewish world, the world of faith, the world of clean, and he goes into the pagan world, the world of idolatry, the world of dirty. And there, in the most unlikely, unreligious, and spiritually unsanitary of places, he finds faith. Those are the best stories. When Jesus finds you in the midst of your dirt and your brokenness and your ugliness, those are the stories you go, whoa, look what Jesus did. Right? The prodigal sons. We don't have to wait to find Jesus. Jesus finds us. 
And he goes into this dark place and he finds and encounters this Canaanite woman, this unclean Gentile, this supposed enemy of the Jews, and a hurting mom. She's hurting. And this mom, dirty, rotten Canaanite, comes up and says this, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Consider how different her disposition is coming to Jesus than the Pharisees who came to Him. The Pharisees are always coming to Jesus with accusations, with criticisms, with questions. This Canaanite, dirty, rotten, pagan, comes to Him not in pride, not unaware of her own needs, but desperate, humble, fully aware of what she can't fix. See, the Pharisees are always coming to Jesus having a problem with Him, and she comes to Him with a problem for Him that only He can fix. And she just simply says, have mercy. And she identifies Jesus in a very unique way for at least a Canaanite pagan. Remember, Every now and then the Pharisees might say teacher, they might say rabbi. Never say Lord. They'll dare say son of David. But she comes and says, Lord, son of David. Jesus is more than a magician to her, more than a good teacher, more than even a miracle worker. She declares Him as master and king. Uses both a Gentile term and a Jewish term. Master, Lord, and king. See, the question at the heart of Matthew's Gospel and the most important question that anyone who ever lives has to answer is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? The religious guys who had all the right answers about God had the most important answer wrong. Guess that? You can have every other answer right about God and have that one wrong. Miss salvation. Who is Jesus? Jesus' supposed enemies come and ask Him to conquer demons and Jesus' supposed people call Him demon-possessed. Did you realize that up until this point in the book of Matthew, the only two people to identify Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior, is a blind man and a Canaanite? You want to talk about the mystery of faith? A blind man and a Canaanite? That's the last people we would have picked. I mean, those guys look clean. Those guys are the Bible guys. They got it all. A blind man who can see nothing says, Son of David, have mercy on me. A Canaanite says, have mercy on me, Son of David. Jesus saves who He's going to save. And no man saves himself. Faith has everything to do with 
who you believe Jesus is and absolutely nothing to do with who you think you are. But this woman comes to him and you go, why, why would she ever come to him? Well, nothing compels a man or a woman to cry out for help, particularly to Jesus more, I believe, than the suffering of a child. Now, you feel helpless. The one time I cried out to the Lord, the strongest I can ever remember is when I felt like we lost our daughter at the water slides. It was the scariest moment of my life. She is, or was maybe seven, and she's just a daredevil. And if you've ever been to the water slides at Lake Chelan, it's like a big hill like this. And so when her brother came down, and I'm like, all right, waiting for my si- her sister. Where's your sister? I don't know. What do you mean we don't know? You're supposed to be with her. I don't know. And so I began to walk. And later we figured out that every time I went up the hill, she came down the hill, right? So I went and reported like, i got to find this. What, what's, what's her bathing suit look like? I have no idea. Polka dots. It had stripes on it. It was totally wrong, right? But I have never been so fearful. I wish I could have said I was completely faithful. I was faithful in it. I was crying out to God. Literally. Crying out, Lord. Imagining the worst of the worst Amber Alerts you can imagine. Like, if you've ever lost a child, you know what I'm talking about. You're fearful. Feeling like, what do I, I can't do anything. I can't fix this. Found her later sitting in the hot tub. What's wrong, Dad? Where, you know, what's the problem? I was like, <laughs> no problem, right? Just bawling. I remember getting in the car and, and our family, like, kids started yelling at each other and Kaylin's like, yeah. I was like, just let them yell. It's beautiful. I love it. Let them scream. Let them hate each other. It's rad. I love it. Right? We have not been back to the slide place yet. I won't without a kid leash. But that kind of helplessness, right, where you are so powerless to do anything is the kind of thing I believe that that most strongly compels us to go to Jesus. This child is demon-possessed. We don't know how long. We don't know what that looks like. They had all kinds of weird magician things they could do, all kinds of other... And she gets to the place where nothing's going to help but Jesus. Faith begins when you come to the realization that your biggest problem can only be fixed by Jesus. And if you believe it can be fixed in any other way, you haven't begun your journey of faith. She's in a place of such desperation. And rather uncharacteristically, Jesus is silent. Catch that? It should disturb us a little bit. Have mercy on me, son of David! My daughter is possessed! Silence. Mind you, Jesus is still present. Don't ever confuse Jesus' silence for His absence. That's not the case. He's still present, but He doesn't speak. But this mom's not going to give up. And then the disciples come and beg Him, right? And commentators disagree a little bit. I think they're trying to be nice to the disciples. The disciples are just buffoons, okay? Let's be honest. They're, they're just like us, okay? And they come, they're like, 
Jesus, come on, this girl, will you send her away, please? She won't stop crying. It's not, can you send her away and answer her prayer? It's like, can you shut her up? The disciples never look good in these situations, ever. They actually sound very much like the Pharisees here. And Jesus speaks after they say, send her away. She is crying out after us. He says to the disciples, but I believe she can hear it, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Right? He is unapologetic about his mission. The primary purpose of his mission, he was sent by the Father as the seed that was promised to Adam and Eve, as the second Moses, as the descendant who would rise to the throne, the king, son of David, Savior of the Jews. He's not just being mean. He's saying, look, God's got a certain order to things. He's got certain priorities to things. There's a way that this mission unfolds. And the truth is, Israel is His priority so that salvation can come to all. Israel was not just a priority for the sake of the Jews. He was It was a priority for the sake of the Gentile world. And what we see here is that what is coming through Israel is now going to find its fulfillment beyond Israel. And that's why we see him move from this Canaanite, right? Like, Clean Pharisees like you guys are totally lost and totally dirty. Dirty Canaanite, I'm going to heal you. And then as we see in the last part of these verses, blind are healed, lame are healed. These are all Gentiles. And you see a glimpse of the bigger picture of all people, all nations who would be included in the blessings that first were promised to Abraham and then came through the seed which was Jesus. But we struggle with Jesus' not yet, right? Where Jesus says, not yet. He doesn't say no, He says not yet. And we don't like His not yet. Why? Because we like our timetable. I don't like how your mission's unfolding here, Jesus. Like, look, there's a priority to things. But this mom will not be dissuaded. And when she overhears Jesus not yet, when He basically has been silent to her, but He's talking to the disciples, her response to Jesus' silence is what? She came and she knelt before Him. What's that? Worship. It's worship. She worships Him. He says, Lord, help me. And then he answers her. And you're like, dude, that's cold. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. Yes, yeah, he, he called her a dog. Now, it's not as bad as she could, he could have called her. There are two different kinds of dogs. In Matthew 7, you probably remember the phrase, like, pearls before swine. Right before that he says, don't send holy things to dogs. Well, that's a different kind of dog. That's like the mangy, yucky dog, right? The don't touch the dog if you don't want to look like the dog in Mexico kind of dog, right? Nasty dog. Perverse dog. Ugly man. Sinful man. Yucky. Like, that's what he's talking about. 
But in this case, it's a different kind of dog. These, this is like, you know, Rusty, right? Your dog. Fluffy, whatever your dog's name is. Gandalf, Calv, whatever. Right? Your dog. The dog, you like, love your dog. The dog you kiss, and you're like, oh, it's nasty. But you think it's awesome, right? The dog you dress up, that dog, right? I'm not making fun of people who dress up your dog. I think it's weird. <laughs> Sorry, Rhonda, I love you, but it's like, there are others. You and your little barking cat. You know, I said, I don't get it. But that dog, right? The dog you love, the dog you cuddle, the dog you choose over your kids at times. That dog. Household dogs, right? This is what he's talking about. There are household dogs, good dogs, loving dogs. Though less than children, these dogs are loved and cared for, and they're part of the family. That's the kind of dog he's talking about, which makes it feel a little better. Still a dog. And this is the issue he's trying to get back, get to, okay? Jesus simply says the children get fed first. The children get fed first. But the woman doesn't despair at what is and amounts to Jesus saying no. Like first he was silent. We have trouble with that because we have a timeline. And then when we hear a no, we also have a bad response to that, which we'll talk to, but her response is very faith-filled. She doesn't despair. She simply says, but the dogs eat too. I know you got to feed the kids first. I know I'm not part of the house, but I'm still in the house. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the Master's table. Even in her responses to the Lord, she's still respectful and honorable. She doesn't argue Jesus' point. She doesn't say, no, you're wrong. She's like, you're right. She doesn't even argue that she's a dog. What you call me? She didn't say that. She's like, I know. Um... Children get fed first, but dogs get fed. She doesn't dismiss the reality of her dogness. She simply asks for a scrap of help. Just want a crumb, Lord. Because that's all it'll take. Just a crumb. I don't, I don't need a feast, Jesus. I don't need everything I ever... I just want this crumb. Because a crumb of Your grace is enough. Just a bit. And what happens? Jesus is moved, right? He's, he's moved. He responds to this, to this faith. He's not, she's a pretty smart gal. But He's not moved by the wit of her words. He's he moved by the faith in her words. And He says to her, I mean, can you imagine Jesus saying this, Oh woman, great is your faith. Bam! Girl, you got faith. Like I was quiet, I said no, and you're like, but Lord, great is your faith. Be done, be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus calls her faith great. And the supposedly great faith of the, the clean, right? The, the great faith of the clean, the Pharisees who 
who were morally correct, had all the knowledge, had all the lineage, had all the ritual, had all these things, he told them their faith was worthless. And the woman who had no rituals, the worst lineage, very little knowledge, is said to have great faith. See, the thing about the Pharisees is the dangerous part. They have a kind of faith. Everyone has a kind of faith. A faith that they actually believe is going to save them. A faith that that gives them joy. A faith that gives them hope. A faith that gives them endurance through certain trials they may experience. A faith that they believe ultimately they are saved because of. That should be frightening to us because the Pharisees have a faith. It's just not a faith that saves. So what is this getting to? Well, if you contrast the two stories, what you have is this simply. Faith alone saves when it is in Christ alone. Like You can have faith in lots of things. Have faith, have faith, have faith. But what are you actually putting your faith in? Faith alone saves, but only if it's in Christ alone. There is one name given under heaven much men may be saved, and that is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And many of us are functioning in our lives as if we are faithful and we are not. In fact, we are putting our faith in everything but Jesus. Let me prove it to you. Our words to Jesus, not the words everyone hears, just your words to Jesus, whether you say them in your head, whether you say them out loud in your prayer time, your words to Jesus, I believe, reveal the disposition of your heart towards Jesus. Why would I ever say that? Well, because Jesus said in Matthew 12, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by their words they'll be justified, and by your words will be condemned. And right before that he said, what comes out of the mouth reveals the heart. The words that come out of this woman's mouth, right, are what? Mercy. Lord. Son of David, Messiah. Help. Those are the words that come out of her mouth. Which Jesus later says, great faith. Our words do not produce faith as much as they reveal the salvation we have or the condemnation we rest in. And I think I post this on Facebook. If you guys know what a word cloud is, right? I'm not talking about the word cloud like boop, 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 boop. Like, word cloud is when, when you have a, an essay or something, a collection of words, and then from that populates the most common words that are said. You probably see clouds like the big words, you know, the things like that. The question I have, have just been pondering this week is, I wonder what a word cloud of my conversations with Jesus would reveal about my faith. What are the biggest words that stick out? Would they be mercy or would they be give me? Would it be I love you, thank you, praise you, or would it be can you? What would a word cloud look like? And I was very convicted because I was uncertain if my word cloud would sound like mercy, Lord, Messiah, help. Well, 
What does faith alone and Christ alone look like? So let me just tell you briefly. Faith in Christ alone causes you to approach Christ as undeserving instead of entitled. The reason the woman is saying mercy is because she knows she is undeserving. Many of us approach the Lord like the Pharisees who believe that I've been good, you owe me, not I owe you for being bad. We approach the Lord entitled. We approach the Lord as if He owes us something instead of one who is undeserving. And I'll tell you, if you approach the Lord entitled, you do not have faith in Christ alone. You have faith in your goodness alone. Or your lack of badness alone. We are to come before the Lord and the first words that should come out of our mouth are mercy. That I have even allowed to come into your presence because I am broken, I am desperate, I am in need, I am sinful. If you do not believe you're the most sinful person in the room, you don't have faith in Christ alone. You have faith in your goodness alone. Faith in Christ alone also causes us to view Jesus as Lord and King as opposed to servant and page. Is Jesus your helpful servant or is He your master? Is Jesus the servant whom you want to go with you or is He the master who tells you where to go? As we approach the Lord, are we kind of going with an agenda? Okay, Lord, here's where I want to go. Help me do that. Or is it, my Lord and my King, what would you have me do? Have mercy on me. My Lord and my King, tell me what to do. Tell me what to say. Tell me what to feel. You are my King. You rule. Your will be done. Do you realize that her approach, the Canaanite, the pagans' approach to Jesus, sounds very much like the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will. That's what she sounds like. Mercy, Lord. When you approach the Lord, are you approaching him as Lord or as your buddy who's going to help you? Because if you are approaching Him as your servant, what you're really doing is putting faith in your power alone. Help me do this, Lord. Not His. Not His rule. Your kingdom that you're building. A couple more. Faith in Christ alone causes us to ask Jesus for the impossible. If we took a word cloud of your requests, are you just asking for earthly practical things? You see, demon possession is something that you cannot fix with the earth. That's asking for something impossible that only God can do. That only can happen if the Holy Spirit shows up. I sometimes wonder if we pray too small. If we're so worried about paying our PUD bill that we don't think about the individual across the street who just needs salvation. 
We pray for just practical little things that we don't think for the impossible. We don't even see the impossible. If you're only praying for the practical, I believe you're putting faith in your own wisdom alone. You know how to fix things. You know what has to happen. The truth is, I don't know what has to happen for someone to be saved. But I know Jesus has to do something. And so I pray to that end. I don't know what has to happen for a church to grow and for more people to be saved, but I know Jesus has got to show up because our wisdom stinks and we screw it up all the time. So we pray for big things. We got people like Mike and Jen Wheeler talking about going down to Chile. Doesn't make sense. Pray for the impossible. How are we going to afford this? I don't know. Pray for the impossible. Do you pray down here? Or do you come to Jesus like, I'm coming to you, Lord, with something that's, that's big. Not best of my desires, but, but based on something that has to happen. This person needs healing. This person needs salvation. This person needs this. And I wonder sometimes also how much of our prayer is actually for ourselves as opposed to others. You realize this woman didn't ask anything for herself. Faith in Christ alone causes us to ask Jesus for the impossible. Last two, faith in Christ alone causes us to respond to Jesus' silence with worship. When Jesus doesn't respond to you, do you go into despair, deeper into despair, or into worship? Jesus' silence moves her to her knees. You're not saying anything, Lord! Or is it just, I'm going to trust You, God. I'm going to just be quiet with You, God. I'm going to trust in Your timeline because what happens is, again, talking about faith in Christ alone, you can put faith in your timeline alone, your plans alone. This is how it's supposed to happen, Lord. And he's like, not yet. Not that way. And you get frustrated and you get anxious. And instead of leading you to worship, it leads you to plan better. Okay, this is what I do. This is my greatest weakness, I think where I encounter a problem, I'm like, come on, Lord, help me. Well, I'll figure it out. And I map it all out as opposed to just, I'm just going to sit. I'm just going to worship. I'm just going to believe, Lord, that You are good, that You are sovereign, that You are King. I'm going to believe that You are a loving Father who always gives His best, even when He doesn't speak a word. That in that moment, that is best. Don't put more faith in your expectations and plans than you do in who God is and His character. The last thing, faith in Christ alone, I believe, causes us to respond to Jesus' knows with persistence. Jesus said no to her. What did she do? What the dogs eat. In Matthew 11, I'm sorry, Luke 11, 
in the Lord's Prayer. There's a parable right after that. And it says this, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, let me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he'll answer from within, Don't bother me! The door is shut! My children are in bed! Leave me alone! I tell you though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. He later says, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. When you are praying for the big, impossible things, how many times like this? Lord? Okay, he's not home. Have you ever gone to someone's house and done that? Knock like this? Yes, they're not here. Let's go. You typically do that because you don't really want to talk with them. Lord. Lord, you realize that Jesus said, pester me! Pester me with prayer! Ask again, and again, and again, and again, and again! Faith in Christ alone causes us to respond to His nose with persistence. Sometimes, His nose and His silences are so that our faith will grow to be persistent and more consistent, and more faithful. Don't put faith in your faith alone. Put your faith in His, right? He is faithful. He is faithful. He's faithful. He's faithful. He's faithful. That's what this Canaanite woman, she won't say no. She won't take no. Come on, Lord. Just give me a crumb. Just give me a scrap. In conclusion, know that these words are not about the quality of our faith. These questions are not about the quality of our faith. They're they're really questions about the content of our faith. Having the right words does not come from doing more for Jesus and saying the right things. It, It comes from believing more about Jesus. In other words, great faith doesn't come from proving your greatness but from beholding His. Great faith sees Jesus as greater. What do you mean? Greater than my sin. Greater than my history, my experience, and my lineage even. Greater than my power. Jesus is greater than my desires. He is greater than my plans. He is even greater than the little bit of faith I can muster. Jesus is greater. That will produce great faith. Faith alone saves when it is in Christ alone. And the cross proves that God will go to whatever length, infinite length He needs to give you His best. So when He is silent, worship. And when he says no, ask again. And he will answer. It may be different than you expect, but it will be exactly what you need. If you are here and you are putting faith in your own goodness, in your own power, in your own ability to figure things out or your strengths to fix it, 
That's a death sentence. The only thing that saves is putting your faith in the perfection that is Jesus Christ. And that is why we take communion. So I'm going to pray and I'll explain communion. And we will worship and sing to our King for all that He has done to us undeserving sinners. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank You. As we come before Your throne, Lord, we do so begging for mercy. We deserve nothing. Our goodness amounts to filthy rags before You. We are rebellious and broken and completely unaware of how dirty we are. And so we desperately cry out for You, Lord, knowing that we need You. We need Your rescue. We need Your healing. I pray that everyone here will see their biggest problems as truly something that only Jesus can resolve. And I pray, Father, You will teach us to approach You in a way that is honoring. That we'll see You as the Lord and Master that You are. That we will not declare to You and dictate to You what we want You to help us with, Father. But we will declare to You that we want You to command us. You to direct us. You to lead us. I pray, Father, that as we hear Your silences this time, we will receive those as blessings. That we will worship You even though You are silent, believing that You are still present. And that, Father, when You you say no, that we'll be a people whose faith grows through persistence. Through asking again and again, not because we feel entitled, but because we feel desperate. And we recognize that our faith has to be in You. Because there's nowhere else to turn. You alone, through Your Son, is where salvation and hope and joy comes from. Let us never disbelieve that. Help our faith. It is in the name of Jesus we pray.